my name is Russ Corley, and I know that your program says to be Russ Corley and Mark Manassi. Mark and I are good friends, and uh, for three years we've been doing a class together. Uh, the last two years we've done a class on pastoral care and leadership, uh, because both of us are committed to the importance of both leadership and pastoral care. We feel like sometimes in churches uh, there are individuals who are in a prominent leadership role, but they really have very little time for people. And we feel like that when, that when that's done, it severs a relationship that really is essential to what ministry is. I don't care if you're the preacher or whatever it is. Uh, these kind of entangling relationships, and by entangling I don't mean uh, unhealthy ones, but I mean relationships where you're committed to people, they know you're accessible, they know you care, they feel you're approachable and all that. And that's why I say entangling, because a lot of people avoid having that kind of relationship they like to be in control of their time. And if you have relationships with people, they do funky things. They keep interrupting you, and they give you that phone call, and they'll know if they can be with you, and all that. And so we both are very committed that that's very important. Uh, Mark is sick, and uh, he apologizes. He can't be with you. So if you came to, I know Benson came primarily to hear his good friend Mark. And so uh, I'll be, I'm going to pass your greetings on to him. I'll have to substitute. I'll tell him to give you a call or something. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I want us to begin with prayer because what we're talking about today is when the Spirit of God begins to move in your life. And what I've said is messes with your life because a lot of times we, we think we want the Spirit to be involved in our lives until the Spirit starts to be involved in our lives. And then we feel like the Spirit is pushing us in a direction that we're not ready for. And sometimes other people are not quite ready for. And so we feel like this is really messing things up. I'm doing pretty well. <clears throat> I just want kind of like a little boost of energy or uh, some little help here and there or that sense of peace or whatever. And very often what really begins to happen is the Spirit begins to do things in our lives. And that's really important. And it's also very exciting, but it can be very disturbing. So we want to talk about that some. And especially, we're not limited to this if you want to take it another direction, but... Especially the way I want to talk about it is in this whole notion of spiritual formation. That is that uh, when Jesus uh, was involved with men and women just like us, uh, he was finding them where they were and loving them and calling them and accepting them. But you'll notice he doesn't want to leave them where they were. He wants to bring them to this experience of the kingdom of heaven that's come near. And that involves this experience of repentance. And it involves this experience called discipleship. And when Paul picks up on that theme in his letters, you find that as he talks about that, he looks at the role of the Spirit in creating this Christ-like life. But he also sees us as intimately involved with the Spirit uh, in, in the production of that life. So he uh, often is saying something like, live a life worthy of uh, this life you've been given in Christ. So that's what we'll be talking about today. And <clears throat> what I'm going to do is pray. Uh, Mark and I both have been praying, not just for our preparation, but I've been praying for you. Didn't know who would be here, but it's always a nightmare thought in my head of I show up in class and no one shows up. And so that'd be okay with me not just having an hour off, and that'd be all right. But uh, I appreciate all of you being here. And so the sense that I and Mark both have been praying when he told me last night he was not going to be willing to be here. I asked him to be specific about praying for those who would gather. 
and that God would bless our conversation and our time together. So if you would, uh, bow with me and uh, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives and in our families and in the places where we work. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, I thank you for these men their desire to follow Jesus, and their desire that your spirit be involved in their lives and be changing them and changing all of us together. And so we pray that you'll bless our time today. And I thank you. I feel like you have called people to be in this classroom today. And I pray you will bless our conversation. In Jesus' name I pray. Well, come on in. Hey, no, no, don't apologize. We're glad to have you with us. Hey there. Good to have you. All right, now, one of the things that I found over my lifetime uh, is that uh, very often I, I have a way of avoiding things that are right there in front of me in Scripture. Have you ever had that experience? So you read something over and over and over again, and then all of a sudden something just kind of leaps out on the page. It's almost like it's standing up and shouting and saying, it's time to pay attention to this. And one of the things I think is really important, when that experience begins to happen in your life, the question is, what do you typically do? So we'll start out with that. So when you have that experience of you notice something in the text you've never seen before, and it's like, it's like there's something moving inside of you. Pay attention, listen closely, read closely. You need this, that kind of thing. Come on in. We got room. What's typically your strategy for dealing with that? Anybody got any? Oh, come on. Yes. I usually try to process it. Um, run it through... What is, what is the Spirit saying to me? All right. Um, then there are times when I read a passage and I have anxiety. Because ah. um, uh, of what I'm sensing in the text and where I am. Okay. Can you, can you, all right, we got two things there. So let's talk about that first one, where you talk about you process it and try to, So how do you, when this text begins to speak to you in an unexpected way, are there things that you have found, because you're, you're a minister, right? So things that you found uh, that help you work with that passage and try to figure out what it is, what, what, what's, why it's standing out, why it's addressing you. What, what kind of things would you typically do? Um, try to make sense of um, what the author was saying to okay. the individuals he was talking to. Right. Specifically the passage in Philippians 1, 21, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, Christ and die is That's a loaded text and so I've been wrestling with that and uh, um, trying to make some sense and then um, looking at um, what that means to me oh. you know and so I kind of look at what the author's okay. intention and, and his movement his development okay so you're trying to be careful not to be carried away with some kind of emotional experience so you're you kind of you've been trained 
do a proper exegesis of a passage, trying to understand what the author is saying, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so so that's part of the way you process it. Now let's let's talk because I'm gonna come back to the anxiety thing because I think that's a shared experience. Now, how many of you, if you come to a passage that that really is kind of your first move, if you got if the passage on kind of speaking to you, you not know before, how many is first move where it's kind of the move to I just need to do more study and kind of do a proper exegesis. I see a head shaking back there. You, how many would say, yeah, that's my first move? Got a number of you. So how many of you would say, that's really not my first move. I may make that move, but that's not the first move I make. Yes, what would yours be? So let it um, percolate. Ah. Just uh, just see what, what that's, why that scripture, I mean, there's, there's scriptures that you will read over the years, and then all of a sudden you read it again. And it, it, it's it's fresh, it's new, it's different, and it, and now it's like okay, why is that different now for me? And, and uh, um, kind of step back and meditate, uh, let it process, let it sit with me. A okay, so one of the things that you mentioned in that, I want to get back to that percolate a little bit more, see more how. But one of the things you said that you do is meditate. Mm -hmm. So now Vincent's first move, at least he says. And I know it's not always that way. Okay, so we got it that. Okay, let's agree with that. But it's more of that kind of study scripture. Yours is to still work with the text, but it's more what's called meditation. In meditation on the text, mainly you're not focused on doing an exegetical study of it. But what you're trying to do is consume that. You're, you're munching on it. When you look at the Hebrew idea of meditating, it's like in, in Psalm 1. So it's, it's chewing on that, it's digesting that, it's trying to make that a part of you, getting it inside of you, working with, I remember reading something by Tim Keller, and he was at a conference, probably something like this conference, and he was with a group, and the person in charge was talking to him about meditating. And so what the person did was, they gave a one verse text, I don't know what the text is, and said, now I want you to spend the next 30 minutes thinking about this one verse, what I want you to do is, I want you to write down 30 things about what it means. And I want you to stay with it for 30 minutes. And so Keller describes what he says is, because this, this is in a, uh, something he's talking about, and I don't know if Tim Keller, but he preaches at uh, the Presbyterian Church in downtown Manhattan. He's been really a powerful author, had a huge influence on a lot of people. If you've never read Timothy Keller, you need to read him. He is a valuable resource. But uh, what he says was after the first 10 minutes, he was doing pretty good. At 15 minutes, he thought he pretty well had it knocked down because he'd actually preached on this passage. Now, those of you who preach or teach, let me just say this. One of the dangers is you think you know what a text says because you've preached on it before, and your first move might be, well, I know I took those notes when I preached on that or whatever. Or go to that commentary that you well underlined. But Keller said he noticed that while he was doing this, there were all these other people still writing. So he started writing again and kept writing and writing. Then when the 30 minutes was over, this is what the teacher says, okay, now what I want to do is, for how many of you found the most important thing the text was saying to you, how many of you discovered it in the first 10 minutes? And no one raised their hand. And what became really interesting for Keller was, for everyone, including himself, it was much closer to the 30-minute mark where they began to discover the text speaking to them in an unexpected way. 
So one of the things I would be encouraging you to do is when the Spirit begins to mess in your life and begin to show you things in God's Word, because I think that's one of the primary things that the Spirit does can use that Word. Studying a Scripture is really important. But meditation on God's Word is really important. And, and in, the, in the biblical view of meditation, it's not primarily trying to blank your mind out. In the biblical view, meditation is primarily dwelling on, living with, working with the passage over and over again. How many of you regularly memorize Scripture? Let's see hands. How many of you regularly memorize Scripture? You used to. Okay. One. Good. But not so good for all the rest of us. <laughs> now, I, look, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a well experienced memorizer. But ever since uh, last year, I've started trying to memorize uh, as much as I can, and I, because I think it's really important. I think it's one of the spiritual disciplines, and it's connected to meditation. When you have memorized a passage, it allows you to, when you wake up, and when you get 64, you probably do this more often, wake up at like 3 o'clock at night, you can't quite get to sleep. And it's nice to have passages that you can have in your head. Or some of you who are younger, maybe beginning to sleep at night is a thing because of all this going on. And having passages in of Scripture in your memory can be very, very helpful to work with. Now, I, I just have recently, and you may already know this, there's a, an app for that. Uh, called Scripture Typer. T Y Scripture T Y P E R. You know it? That's what I use. I all right, all right. There you go. You like it? I love it. It's, can you can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a memorization technique where it it, it gives you three kind of levels of, of memorization. Right. So first you you have whatever the scripture is that you're trying to memorize it in in its full glory. You kind of see it, you read it. And then you move to level two, which uh, you kind of fill in blanks uh, of... Uh, it leaves out every other word. Right, leaves out every other word. And you can switch it to have every other word. Right, right. 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 And, and then level three is just a blank screen, and you're just you're, you're typing the first letter of, of each passage of, of, of Scripture. And um, uh, each word, I should say. Yeah. First letter of each word in that passage. Until you get it all, yeah. all right. Now, if you prefer, you can have another typing method, which is you type out each word. That takes a little longer, but it shows your accuracy, and if you type out every word, it shows your speed. The, the first letter seems awkward at first, after a while you get used to it. Now, that first stage one, actually they ask you to just go ahead and be looking at the text and typing it in, first letter or the whole word, and, and saying it out loud. So what you have, especially if you're saying it out loud when you type and when you are in that process of memorizing, you're speaking it, physiologically you're typing it, your eye is seeing it, and you have all this kind of reinforcement going on. And then once you, quote, have it mastered, then they put you on a review protocol. So they'll remind you uh, every few days it's time to review because if you're like me, it's very easy to forget. But it is a, it's a, so you can, uh, there's a website that you can have, but also you can have it on your iPad or iPhone or your Android or whatever, and the app is there. So scripturetyper.com. Typer. T-Y-P-E-R, because you want to be typing. Okay. Yeah. And the first letter uh, approach is especially nice if you're on your phone, because that just instead of trying to, so it's that, but it's just, it's very, very helpful. 
So we got we got study, we have meditation. Uh, you said something else, or you were not just meditate. Oh, is there anything else that you do besides meditate? Okay. Do either one of you, in, in part of that process, or others, when you have this experience? All right. Before I go, um, did somebody else have something they want to say about what they do when they come across this passage that seems to be strangely speaking to them? They. Yeah. What. The way I approach it is I not as much go to a specific scripture, but God has, through the Spirit, has said, we need, I need to study some more about subject. Okay, yes. Okay. And then, going, and I'll say, okay, where, how, what scriptures fit that? And then, I, I think those scriptures fit that, yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And so I read a scripture that says, oh, it is, it, maybe it's saying something different to me relative to what I'm okay. looking for. So sometimes instead of the, the scripture getting your attention, God's gotten your attention about something going right. on and saying, and this is the scripture think about this. Let's this think together on this. This is the scripture you need to think right. about. Okay. And then you read it and say, how does that apply to what okay. God is talking about? All right. Before we get to that anxiety thing, uh, anybody else want to say what they do when... when yes. Well, I'm not a minister. That's okay. That's yeah. Well, we all are ministers, yes, but you're not yes, one who's paid. Yeah. Well, See, there are few of us who so get paid for ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean. There you go. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean. Anyway, so I just start I just start asking God. I just start asking him questions. I start what did you mean by this or what are, I, I need to look further. And so it's my way of studying, I guess, or my way of meditating. But I just and then I it then that just piques my ears to hear. He starts speaking to me through a sermon or and I start hearing him huh? and other things. Okay. See that's a little bit different. Right? Because, and I'm saying not different in strength, but different than the two things already, although my guess is that both of these, all three of these, had that implied because very often when God starts to deal with us, prayer becomes very important. Asking of God. But it, in our praying, we need to recognize that prayer has this conversational quality to it. It's not just our asking, because we're asking God to answer things. So sometimes we mean answer by doing things for us in the world. But God can also show us things and can teach us. And very often that's to send us deeper in Scripture. But sometimes it will be someone else, like in a sermon or through somebody else, there will be these kinds of things that will begin to work together for our good because we love God and we, we feel like He's addressing us in some way. And our desire is to know what, what that is. And so we pray. And I think that prayer, pray, praying is very important. Look at, for example, Ephesians chapter 1. One of the things you find in Ephesians chapter 1 is Paul is thankful for their love for each other and the faith they have in Christ Jesus. But he says, I keep praying for you daily. And what's he praying for? That we might know, come to know him better. And the hope to which he's called us. And the riches of our glorious inheritance, God's holy people. And the power that was exerted in the resurrection of his own son. And in chapter 3, where prayer is once again there, when Paul is praying, he prays in chapter 3 that we receive this power so that we may know him better. And in knowing God better, I think it's not only knowing God as a person better. I certainly think it's that because this is a relationship with God, a dynamic relationship with you and God. And not just with you as an individual, but you and, and the community that you are involved with. 
God is concerned not just with us as individuals, but as in relationship. And if we, we fail to understand the spirituality of relationships, it's like failing to understand the spirituality of the body or the spirituality of the mind. Very often what we do is we put spirituality in a nice, tight little compartment, like maybe it's feelings. And so we think of the spirituality as the way we feel. And see, one of the dangers is if spirituality to you is only about feeling, then this is what you're going to be seeking. You're going to be seeking environments that make you feel good. You're going to be looking for that church that's got the right music, it's my kind of music, and then the right speaker, my kind of speaker. If you can't search around, you can't find that, then you try to go on the internet and try to find some combination of that music and that speaker, and then so then you kind of wall yourself off from other people. And then I know people, this is what they go is, well, you know, when I really had that feeling where I'm close to God, that's because they're once again just made me feeling. Basically, it kind of goes like this. I just love to be out in nature. Now, listen to what they say. It's, it's a certain kind of nature they would like to be out. They don't like the mosquitoes to be out biting, right? <laughs> and they don't want that torrential rain or the mudslide going on and all that. Right then, nature doesn't feel too spiritual to them. And they, they would really like the temperature to be just right. If it's too cool, well, not quite right. But too hot, well, that's just kind of, that's a bother. And if you can just put me in a really beautiful spot, so if I go on vacation to that spot, I can have that feeling that is close to God. Now look, I love when I'm in God's created order. So read, read uh, Psalm 19. And the first half of Psalm 19 talks about how the created order is a revelation of God. God, we can experience God in creation, but the next section is about uh, God in His Word. And Jesus makes it very, very clear, and He loved being out in nature, although sometimes it got rough. He had to do calm storms because it created tremendous fear, which is a feeling, but it didn't feel very spiritual to the guys. And even Jesus is kind of looking at their spiritual state there, their, physical, their emotional state, and is looking at their spirituality going, hmm, what's going on here? Why don't you have this peace that now the waves have? So, we've got, we got study, we've got meditation, we've got kind of asking in prayer, and, and maybe asking in prayer with other people. So community is really important. And I think you kind of mentioned, uh, look, acting and talking to some other people about getting some spiritual discernment with that, which I think is important. Finding community that can be involved with us. Right? Anybody else want to add to that what the kinds of things that you do when you feel like God's trying to get your attention, He's starting to mess with you and say, I think you need to deal with this, I think you need to pay attention to that passage, I think you need to think a little more deeply. Anything else that is kind of your go-to things that you do to kind of help you now discern what it is that God is trying to teach you. Okay, let's come back. The anxiety thing. Now, see, I think, can you elaborate that? Because I don't want to feel in my meaning on that. Can you elaborate that just a little bit? For me, it's when you look at a particular text mm -hmm. um, and you think by now you, you understand it, only mm -hmm. to find out that you're still a good distance away right. from being what you believe that text is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's the anxiety. It's not a negative anxiety, but it's it's the kind of anxiety that says, okay, uh, you need to reevaluate, uh, for instance, how you see Christ and what it means to really live for Him. Okay, so you're okay now. I think I better understand. So part of the anxiety you're coming in is that you're 
your whole thinking pattern to, to actually fit what you're learning about this text. Your mind, the way it's structured, the way it's been thinking, maybe long patterns of thought, kind of the way you really like it, are now being altered. Is that fair? It is. And that creates some anxiety. Amen. And for others, it's in the form of, not just in my thinking, but with others, it comes in the form of my doing. There's something that I feel compelled to do, and I'm, 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 I don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, it could be the vice versa. I'm doing something the scripture tells me not to. And I really yeah, oh, that's part of what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, yes, I, that's part of what I mean. Yes, it could be either. Yeah, I do you know, something I haven't done, but the other is stop doing the thing you're doing. This is you have been wrong. And see, here's what happens. Probably none of you. You're probably more spiritual than I am. I rationalize. Oh, I and I have structures of rationalization called my friends. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's one of the things that can create me because I kind of go, so if I change this way of thinking and if I start doing this and I start talking about this, there are going to be people who've been really comfortable with me. Now they're not going to be comfortable anymore. And, and you know what? I like to be liked. And yes. You also like the status quo. There's something about the status quo. And there's something about being a member of what uh, Peter Burgess, who's a sociologist, I think he's still alive, I'm not sure, because being a member of the cognitive majority. A cognitive majority means the majority of the people around you agree with you. So you can hold that view and they go, yeah. And if you hold that other view, that puts you in the minority, and then you have a lot more responsibility to explain why you're thinking that, why you would say that, what's going on. Or if it is in a relationship or something I'm doing, let's say, for example, let's say there's a relationship I'm involved in that I should not be involved in. And it becomes clear that I need it in that relationship. Well, I've never found that it really works really well going to somebody and going, look, you know, I know we've been friends, but I, God's been really showing me something, and I think this relationship has to change. I'm sorry. Really? Or if this relationship is going to continue, we both have to change. And see, that's putting demand on you, right? And, and neither one of those is something you really want somebody to be having with you, right? Because it makes... It makes that person feel now rejected or judged or whatever. And so it can create anxiety because you just kind of go, hmm, how do I do this? How do I handle this? Anybody else have other forms of anxiety when God is really trying to show you something or teach you something new or move you in a, in a different direction? Yes? Um, I think sometimes when you like, go tell this person this, but yes. you don't know how they're going to receive it. Mm. Even if it's a positive thing, you don't know where they're at or what's going on. Oh, and yeah. so, or if it's a kind of a correction thing because you're in relationship and you're trying to protect your connection. And sometimes we just kind of want to go, no, I don't really want to say that. And then he pushes you even more and he's like, no, but I'm asking you to do this. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's say, yeah, I got that because... Uh, there are people in, in uh, certain traditions who talk about having a word of knowledge about somebody, so you, you, it's like you know something about someone and when you actually do investigate, you know that's true, but you're afraid to do anything about it. I have a friend who was a minister, 
And a few years ago, I knew something was wrong. I had no idea what was wrong. I tried to deal with that, but uh, basically, he just kind of severed that relationship, which that, that might was fine. But a few years later, it came out that he'd actually been involved with uh, someone in the congregation. And there were a number of people who saw him and her together at different times, but they, they, they felt like they ought to say something, but then they felt like if they did, well, they're just being judgmental, or some, I think some actually did try, and, and they were assured that everything's okay, we're just good friends. Uh, some even tried to talk to him and felt like that he was not willing to talk about that, so they went to some elders, and the elders told him, well, judge not, that you be not judged, and... And so what happened was the, the relationship went on another year or so before it finally came out. And when it came out, it was much harder to deal with and all that. But what was becoming very clear was there was some, there was some need to be addressing things. But I, I want to be real careful about when we talk about this because I grew up watching uh, Andy and Mayberry. <laughs> okay, anybody watch Andy Mayberry? There's a Barney Fife and the Andy uh, Andy uh, Taylor approaches to dealing with people. Barney seems to be delighted to deal with your life. He'll write you a ticket. He wants to put you in jail and all this kind of stuff. He carries that silver bullet around with him, put that one bullet in, and offer to shoot his foot when he did that. And Andy was kind of this gentle kind of guy who would come up and so, yeah, I, I think there are times when we feel like we are being directed to speak to somebody. But I, when that happens, I, I try to pay attention to that, but it's, it's very disturbing. It can create tremendous anxiety. Now, at other times, I feel like I'm just supposed to check in on somebody. And that's very, to me, that's pretty simple. If somebody's name is showing up in my mind for some reason, I do not know why, just call and say, hey, just want to check on you. You've been on my mind today. Or text them and go, you doing okay? Now, sometimes people will feel awkward even with that. I had a guy, he's a preacher. I had a guy who's a preacher. I called him one day. I said, you know, you've really been on my mind today. I just want to make sure you're okay. He said, oh, I'm doing great. I'm just doing great. And I go, well, I just want to check and you'll be in my prayers. And two weeks later, he called me back and go, I need to apologize to you. I need to confess to you. When you called, I wasn't doing great. But I was too, because he's a minister. Sometimes those who are paid to be ministers, have a lot of anxiety and embarrassment because we're trying to manage somehow this impression of self that appears to be vulnerable but doesn't want to be too vulnerable and all that kind of stuff. It's very hard for us to be honest, which is, for those of you who do work for a church, it's a problem for us, and we've got to get over that. We've got to build in structures of accountability into our lives. We've got to have people who know us well enough and they are, not, they are permission to speak into our lives. Because if we don't have that, we will do damage to our lives. And when we do damage to our lives, when we're trying to work with other people, especially if we're not dealing with something. For example, God showing me something I have to deal with, but I'm not dealing with it because I really don't want to deal with that. Especially if that's something I'm doing that I ought not to be doing. But I know how to do it so that no one really perceives it. Right? In our culture, our crazy culture, people say, well, perception is reality. I don't agree. I, I, I got that over that comes philosophically, but I don't buy it. Because you cannot be perceiving that uh, uh, car that's about to hit you. You might not be perceiving it, and all of a sudden it runs you down and you're dead. It doesn't mean the car wasn't real when you weren't perceiving it. It just means that you were not aware of its real presence. I'm, I tend to be a realist about things. Because I believe in God. I believe God created 
a universe that has reality to it. And so I, I just, I, I think, but, but I think his problem, what he went on to say was, I just, I just felt like I couldn't share, and he didn't go into much detail that day, but he just let me know that what had been on my mind, this is not somebody I talked to very often, so this was pretty one of those kind of random things. Just, that's what's weird. Somebody this name from nowhere shows up and you kind of go, okay. And just at least learn, learn just on something simple like that. Learn to make that a part of your practice to do something about it. Don't just go, well, that's curious. I wonder why that name kind of Just have possibly. Well, could that be God trying to get my attention and somehow do something for somebody else because God cares about them? And we ought to think that that's possible. Yes. And that what I might be called to do, called by God to do, might make the other person uncomfortable. And that would be okay because um, because it's something that I've been called by God to do. So just because it makes somebody uncomfortable doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. That's true. I, the, the one qualifier is that there are people who sometimes have so much confidence in the way God speaks to them that He tells them what sh color socks to wear and all that. <laughs> and so those people, I think, become a little bit kind of loose cannons because almost any strong impulse that comes through them. So that's why I think trying to pay attention but also processing and kind of thinking through is really important. But yes. Now, here's one of the things I learned uh, back in 1990. I was working with the church in Nashville. I was preaching there. I've been in Columbus for 10 years, came back to Nashville to this church, was preaching there. I uh, had three children. And my problem then was that, that uh, the book that got my attention was a book by George MacDonald. Anybody heard him? George MacDonald wrote children's literature, the poetry, all kinds of stuff. He's a, a writer who strongly influenced C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay? And Lewis, called, there's an anthology of George MacDonald's sayings of George MacDonald's, and in that, C.S. Lewis says, he has been my mentor. Okay? So that, that says something about George MacDonald. So maybe I don't, but that says something about George MacDonald. And I've been reading one of his uh, novels called The Curate's Awakening. And in that story, there was a minister who had been preaching other people's sermons. And every, by the time he got done with the sermons that he felt like were good sermons, it was usually time for him to move on. So he came to church. He kind of started recycling those sermons or somebody else's sermons. Which, let me just say, if you do preaching, don't be preaching other people's sermons unless you say, this is David Platt's sermon or Andy Stanley's sermon and here's the video. Let him preach it. He probably do a better job than you will. Preachers should not be plagiarizing. I don't mind people, I don't mind you borrowing give credit. I mean, I don't mind telling people Dallas Willard's had a big impact on me. Uh, I don't mind telling people George McDonald's had a big impact on me. And when I quote them, I try to say who that's from. And it could be that things slip out of me that I'm not intending to be mine, but if I didn't recognize it. But anyway, I, I was reading the curious, but there, there, in that story, there is a dwarf who listens to this guy from the early sermons and recognizes somebody else's sermon. So this dwarf goes to the curate and says, that's not your sermon. And that becomes a conversation. And basically, eventually, uh, this other character convinces the curate that he needs to preach his own sermon, but he doesn't know how to do it. And so the dwarf's advice was, 
spend time in Scripture, and when God teaches you something true, go out and do it. And then you'll have something to preach about. And he talked about how uh, the first time he did that, there were those people who said, we've never heard anything so wonderful, but there are also those who were very disappointed because the sermon was not that eloquent kind of thing, all that, right? But I, I read that in SRE Ward, George McDonald. He, kept, he was one of the first I came across who was so emphatic about listening to what God tells you and being willing to do it. And just learn at the experimental basis. And so I, I began to take that very seriously with another good preacher friend of mine who lived across town. And we would, one of the things we began to do was pray every week. We'd get together, pray every week, and we'd ask God to open our hearts and lead us. And it kind of became a wild ride. Very exciting, very dramatic. But in Nashville, back in 1990, uh, Rubel Shelley, well, I've heard of Rubel Shelley, right? Rubel Shelley was a real leader. Now, Rubel has changed kind of incrementally over time. So at one time, he was kind of on the far right of the Church of Christ. So he was kind of like the King James Version is the version. Oh, it's so, I mean, his, he can tell his own story. But he was changing and had been changing as he was changing. Lipscomb College at that time, it's now a university, is there in Nashville. It's become a much different place, but at that time it was very conservative. And so Rubel was viewed by the, the, the Bible faculty as a dangerous preacher. At that time, I know this sounds, this sounds so old. It sounds so antiquated, but I'm just telling you, he made the bold statement in the sermon that I at that time thought was a crazy statement anyway, but he made the statement, I think instrumental music is a sin, but I can have fellowship with people in the Christian church. That little statement that to me, I was thinking when I heard that, I go, why is he saying, why, why won't he just say it's, it's just a choice and so therefore I can have That's not because his mind works methodically, and I'm sure that view has changed over time, but that that he was suddenly being written up in all kinds of church Christ publications in Texas and Tennessee and people if they could have, they would have crucified him. They would have, they would have thought they were doing a service to God. They, they probably thought that God was leading them to do write those articles. I, so that, that's one reason we have to be careful about all that. It's always got to be done in love. But one of the things I was becoming very, very aware of was that what was happening in my life was very dangerous given the climate of Nashville that was very skeptical of anybody who was not kind of in the mode Church Christ. And my preaching had started to change and was making some of our elders uncomfortable. I wasn't, I wasn't talking about kind of radical innovations in the worship service, but I was talking about the seriousness of discipleship and the seriousness of listening to Jesus and following Jesus and doing what Jesus tells you to do. And I, I did not realize how upsetting we had a lot of Muslim faculty at, at our group. And I didn't realize that, and that's where Josh Brady's preaches now, so the church has changed dramatically since then. So anyway, but back then we had very different eldership, so this was a long time ago. Uh, it was creating tension for the elders because they were Muslim faculty members who thought they might lose their job because they were coming to this church and I was preaching there and and so once uh, on the Monday morning I was working through the Gospel of John and I had gotten to John 13 so that was the next thing to be preaching on and who knows what the Gospel of John opens up with in, in chapter 13 no one 
We haven't memorized it yet. Okay. <laughs> well, it is it is washing feet. Okay. And so I'm walking. There's a beautiful park where Otter Creek used to be uh, called Radford Lake, and I was walking on the trails and praying. And all of a sudden, it just became very clear to me that I should wash the feet of, and three names came, that I should wash the, the feet of three people. And suddenly, you talk about anxiety. <laughs> I was filled with anxiety. That was not something I wanted to do. Uh, I talked to my preacher friend. I sought uh, outside help. The one we've been praying with, we prayed, and he told me, I don't think that's from God. And I'm going, Whoosh. <laughs> but he said he's going to keep praying. Now, here's the thing that's happening to me all week long. It just grew more and more intense. I can still remember walking to the car one day after I've been in my study, getting ready to go visit in hospitals, going to the car, and, and I, I, this will sound strange. I know this will sound strange to you, but it was as if it was as if a finger had just been suddenly poked into my brain. I mean, it's that kind of sensation, strange sensation I've never had before or ever again. But along with that finger pointing was that same idea to wash feet. And I just kept, I mean, I spent a lot of time on the trail praying because that was something I, I, I just didn't want to obey. I'm just telling you, I did not want to obey. And Jim had told me, don't, I don't think that's from God. I was being good about that. Until Saturday morning, early in the morning, because we both get up really early, he called me and go, I've been praying this morning and you're supposed to wash feet tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the anxiety was kind of back. I talked to my wife, and uh, she didn't look at me as crazy. She said, I think you're supposed to wash feet. Mm -hmm. So I did. On Sunday morning, I washed the feet of the three people. And uh, on Monday morning when I got to church, my locks had been changed, and mm -hmm. the senior elder was standing outside and goes, you've been fired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They did give me a month of support. So I had three children and all that. But this is one of the now it, it had been a crazy time in that church, okay? So this so but one of the interesting things for me was the sense of peace and assurance that everything, everything would be alright. I didn't have anxiety about it. I mean, there was, a, there was a sense of, I'm not sure how it's going to be all right. But in the next few weeks, now there were people who came to me and said, you just need to start another church. We'll show them. There were some angry people that I didn't let go. And I said, no. Because what you don't want to be doing is splitting a church. That just does more damage. That would be the wrong thing to do. That's not my intent. Nashville had plenty of churches, both Church Christ and non-Church Christ, and need another one started, although they keep getting started. I said, I, I, I just, I don't believe that's what's supposed to be done. And there's some other people, though, who said, well, we don't want you leaving Nashville. We think there'll be other churches that'd be interested in you. We don't want you leaving Nashville. But you're committed about hospital ministry and working in hospitals, and you like doing uh, small group studies and stuff. So there were some people who were there and some others who were not a part of that church who said, we will commit three years to providing funding uh, for you to uh, start a ministry we named Encouragement Ministries and uh, for three years. And if after that, we're not going to commit funding after that, but if after that uh, there's no more funding, then that'll give you time to make that transition and all that. And one of the things when I met with the first group, one of the things we talked about was this. I never wanted in my work to make fundraising 
the centerpiece of what I do. My, my conviction was, based on George McDonald and George Mueller and others, if God wants you to do a thing, He will provide for you. Now, you can't go, this is what I want to do, God provide. That's not the way it works. If God wants you to do something, He will provide for you. Now, that whole approach to fundraising, let me just tell you, if you look at uh, instructions on how to run a nonprofit, I don't believe you're ever going to find any instruction running a nonprofit saying, don't make fundraising an important part of what you do. <laughs> but that started in 1990. We have our, our, our approach to fundraising basically is every month we send out a letter and said, this is what we're up to. And uh, once a year we have a dinner, and our purpose in the dinner is to thank people who give them to us. It's not a, I've had people get after me for not making a big ask. They go, if you had to make the people come to these dinners to give, and I go, no, these people give, and we're not trying to get them to give. We're just letting people know how God has used them to help us to do this. And these are some of the stories, these are some of the people. And then, so that's that's 28 years now that encouraging ministers have been in existence with that approach to doing ministry. We've never run out of funds. God's brought us through any kind of challenge. And when the time came, I had been asked at Madison, I, at Madison Church Christ asked them when they went through a crisis about three and a half, almost four years ago now, to start working with them. It's the first time I've been asked to preach uh, since I've been let go in 1990. I've spoken in some places, but to you know, preach in a regular way. But they asked me to serve in that capacity, and so then suddenly I was doing kind of two full-time things. But we had somebody who'd been part-time involved with encouragement ministries during the summer, and she's about ready to retire from her full-time job. But she was anxious. She was anxious. You know what she was anxious about? Her full-time job, she knew she had financial support. And this seemed a bit crazy. But we spent time, we prayed about it, and uh, finally she reached the point where she felt profoundly convicted that this is what God was opening up. And so last summer she started full-time with us. And what we've seen is I've cut back some hours and, and my, my support. Uh, so that kind of, so I'm not trying to do way too much. But as soon as she made that commitment, all of her anxiety went away. When she stepped away from that job, she'd been a part of for 30 years. She's director of school. She stepped away from that job. I, I've asked her many times, and she goes, I have never been happier in my life. I've never had the more, the more deeper sense that this is what God had prepared me to do all along. And she'd been doing it that's so why when you talk about, well, I'm not a paid minister. Well, my guess is you do minister to people. She'd been ministering to people in that role all her life, writing notes, going by to visit people, taking care of people, all of that. But now she has a, a structure that supports her and frees her to do that. But all that, all that was set up in a way, and, I, and one of the interesting thing I got to keep my own, one of the interesting things that I had was one of the leaders at Lipscomb at that time, which was 1990, called me and said, "Can we get together?" So I went by to talk to him, and he said, "You know, and this what he, this is what he said to me. That's why sometimes when somebody says, I think I should have said something, it's not always so." He he goes, "Well, Rusty, that's what he." as a student. He said, Rusty, I, I felt like I needed to give you a call because I felt like this was coming. This was not a surprise to me. He's one of these kind of very institutional men. You know, like this. And I, I'm not saying anything bad about that, but there, there are people who know how institutions work, and so they have a sense of, 
if you do this, that's the consequence, okay? And he was saying, I had heard that you were talking about Jesus. <laughs> and he said, I learned long ago that uh, don't just say Jesus. You need to say Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus. Because if you just say Jesus, uh, people feel like you have this personal relationship with him. And that makes people feel really uncomfortable. Right? I'm, I'm just, I'm just, and look. There are things that would go on today that if you were to tell that in almost 30 years would seem strange to those people. I mean, have you ever done that with uh, annual pictures? You look back at those annual pictures, how could people look like that? They thought they looked good. They looked in the mirror, but they walked out of the room and ah! Oh, that's going to happen to you too. People are like, what were you thinking? Was that really you? A squint heart? Was that really you? You had hair then? But part of what I'm saying, when, when we talk about the Spirit working in our lives, one of the things I think is so important, you either believe there is a real God who is a loving Father who cares about His children, or you don't. If you believe that, I don't say just believe the words, but you believe that those words are pointing beyond themselves to a reality that is deep and profound, and your teacher Jesus, as Dallas Willard says, your brilliant teacher Jesus has taught us to think about God in that way. And Jesus in the Gospel of John says over and over again, I don't do anything the Father doesn't show me. And I don't say anything that I don't hear the Father saying. Now that's how Jesus did things. Shouldn't that be the way I try to do things? Listening to Him, hearing, trying to see what He's really doing, praying for discernment, praying for that wisdom and knowledge. In, 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 in uh, Ephesians 1, I didn't really do the quoting of the passage because he, Paul prays that they receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they might know Him better. I, I think Jesus was not only making disciples then and looking at them and saying, when you're weary and you're heavy laden and you're burdened with anxiety, you come to me and I'll step into the yoke with you and I'll be with you in this. The question is, and look, this is, this is one of the ways, uh, this is one of the ways God had changed my mind. For so long, I realized that in my life, practically, I had this view. Jesus lived, died, resurrected, went to heaven. And going to heaven was basically, hmm, we're tired. I've done my work, I'm going to just, I'll see you when you get here. <laughs> but then you find those passages get your attention. So like in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, what we talk about. He says, and I'll be with you always to the end of the ages. What does that mean? With you always? And he made promises like, I wonder how often you think about this when you gather in your church on Sunday morning or in your Sunday, wherever it is, your house or whatever. Where two or three of you gather my name, what does he say? What's his promise? No. I'll be there with you. So do we really, are, are we sensitive enough that we begin to discern his presence with us? Do we really believe he meant those words? Are those just words to make us feel better? I don't think those words were just an attempt to make us feel better. I think Jesus is talking about a reality, an interpersonal reality that his disciples needed and we as disciples needed. 
If I were going to go to my notes I prepared today, which we've not talked about at all, <laughs> if I was going to go to that, well, one of the things that I think happens in my life is this. I think that so often I pray to my life, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And what I mean is, uh, thy kingdom come as long as it's not going to bother me too much and my will be done. And I want him to bless my will. And, and I, for years, I wasn't paying any attention to the fact that that was going on because I was rationalizing. I could pray those words, but I wasn't really paying attention. Let me just ask you this. When's the last time you camped out in the Sermon on the Mount and spent a few weeks or months meditating on the Sermon on the Mount? This is what I know very often happens with all of us. I've been guilty of this. We have certain passages in the Sermon on the Mount we pull out and those are the ones we like. And number one, we don't look at the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Dallas Willard and the Divine Conspiracy, there are three books by Dallas Willard. If you never read them, you need to read them. One is called Hearing God. It's about this personal relationship you can have with God. Hearing God. The other is called The Divine Conspiracy. If you've never read The Divine Conspiracy, it came out in the 90s, you'll have to read it. Willard was a philosophy professor at USC for 40 years. And it had a profound impact on a lot of people like Richard Foster and others. And Richard Foster, close friends, that's who wrote Celebration of the Disciplines. And, and all the emphasis on spiritual formation you see in the evangelical world today, uh, Dallas Willard and Richard Foster were key individuals that God raised up because they were teaching in a small Quaker church 40 miles outside of uh, Los Angeles in the desert together. It's a church that was dying. But that's where they came together. Richard Foster, a young minister at a seminary, and Dallas Willard as a person who was teaching the adult class. And that friendship that was founded in a dying church. We, we, don't, we think God is not working in places that look small to our eyes. And there in that place, a friendship being born and formed that suddenly had a huge impact. We've got to get away from this notion that big is great. Right. If big was great, Jesus was silly. In John 6, he has 5,000 people at the beginning of the chapter. By the time he gets done, how many people does he have left following him? How many? Twelve. He fed the 5,000. They were so excited, they wanted to make him king. And he starts talking about, well, you got to feed on me. you got to eat my body. you got to drink my blood. And they kind of got act. And so they leave. And finally, it's just the 12 around left with him. And he goes, you're going to leave me too? And people go, you got the works life. We're not going to go anywhere. But my guess is, most of you, if you had a church of 5,000 people and you were kind of the head, the senior pastor there, you're kind of going, I'm doing pretty good. And, and if you read, I just started reading David Platt. I, a lot of what he's talking about, I've thought about before. And so he uses that illustration. I thought, well, I used that same idea a few years ago. I didn't know that David... So, but you find that these ideas that, that become suddenly God starts speaking to people and changing your mind, the way we look at the world is not the way Jesus looks at the world. And if He doesn't start changing our minds, it, it's going to do damage to us and then we'll do damage to other people we know. And so working with the Sermon on the Mount for me has been life-transforming. It's taken me a long time to get through it. I'm preaching through it right now. A long time to get through it. And I still have a long way to go. By the way, the third book that I was with that I really strongly recommend is called The Renovation of the Heart. If you've not read that one, that's where he talks about discipleship and how our lives are to change. 
and looks at the thought life and the emotional life and the soul and relationships in the body. And it's, it, it's his uh, theology slash philosophy of person. And it, it's published by Navigator Press. But those three, I think, would be valuable for you to look at. But once again, when I, when I read through the Sermon on the Mount, it is addressed to his disciples. And I think we need to get past thinking that discipleship is for a few kind of crazy people who take things a little bit too serious. I think the Spirit is messing with people's lives in a, in a strong way right now, saying, you might have to pay attention to following Jesus. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit works with us in that. But you can read, Mark was here, part of his role was going to be looking at Romans 6 and 8, and then look into chapter 12 and all this, this transformed life that is your... Uh, that, that, express itself in the body that is your uh, sacrifice that you offer to God. And all how it changes all these relationships and because it's permeated with love and used to change everything. The way you look at people, not demanding your own way, reconceptualizing what it is to be free with each other and taking responsibility in those relationships. So we're almost out of time. Anybody have any just... Uh, th yes? Yeah, on McDonald's, it's MC or MAC on the charge of M-A-C. M-A-C. Oh, Scottish. Yeah. What are the three books again? Hearing God, the Renovation Hearing God, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, <coughs> and Renovation of the Heart. Can we speak really quickly about if you are the minister or someone who has a small group or a group of that you influence, and you start hearing these things, no one else does yet. They're a little bit further ahead. Can you, how can you help them start to listen and hear Yeah, I, uh, right now, I'm, and once again, I, I, I can't pose myself as a great example or whatever, but there are two groups of men that I'm very involved with. Um, and I, I think one of the keys is to be meeting with guys on a regular basis really getting to know who they are, what's going on, listening a lot. I, I think any of us need to be really careful to try and take charge of somebody else's life. There's all this work I have to do. I think if you'll do the work God is telling you to do in your life, <coughs> teach you things, and there will be things that then you'll want to teach others, but not, not in the sense of fix them, but as they see it being practiced in your life, and you pray about them. You pray that God begin to work in their heart and your heart and see where that goes. I, I, I can't, I mean, it, it, I, it just varies so much from, because everybody, your personality is probably different than my personality. So see, that's why, that's the danger. In, in our culture, what happens is it's all about writing a book and telling everybody how to do it and everybody's got to do it exactly like everybody's got to do it. So look at in the, in the Gospel of John 21, where Jesus is standing there with Peter, who was doing it his way and really messed up, right? He thought he was going to do good, fails in that. At the end of that, he's being restored in relationship with Jesus, right? Jesus tells him what he's going to do, what Peter's to do, feed my sheep, so take care of my sheep, right? To, to love Jesus, authentically love him, and to feed his sheep. And then he also tells him, this is how you're going to die. And then he talks about some anxiety. So that Christ dies again, yeah, that you're going to die. And what Peter does, his anxiety is so good, he goes, well, what about him? Right? 
And, and what we learn there is whatever I do with him, that's what I do with him. I had this to do with you. So, as Dallas Willard says, if Jesus is our brilliant teacher, then you bring that question to him and you listen. And my guess is over time, it will become really clear who you need to be addressing, how you need to. People, more than anything else, need encouragement. That's why we call it encouragement ministries. People, we get so discouraged and life is so hard and we're so wounded and there's so much healing to do and people need someone who will come alongside them and love them and listen to them talk because a lot of times somebody starts to talk and, and the other person glazes over and the conversation is pretty well over. You're still talking. but and So we need people who are good at listening and feeling into that and understanding, but also who have studied and know how to answer hard questions. Because my guess is the more you have relationships, there will be questions that you'll be asked, and the question is, are you ready to answer them? And not just say this. I need to think about that and pray about that. I need to meditate on that question. That, that's a good question. Let me get back to you. So if you don't know an answer, don't try to fake an answer. If you don't know an answer, go, that's great. I hadn't thought about that. Get a little anxiety going on you. And, and start being in the Word and prayer and see. And maybe that you can solve something by a study and a commentary or maybe by meditating on things. Or I don't know, but God can make that clear too. Yeah. So all I want to say is, yes, David. The other thing is patience. We're going through that in the yeah. sense of, of eldership and the, and the minister concerning the, the vision of our church. And all eight of us are on different pages right now. All right. And I want to do this, he wants to do that. And it's basically saying, thank you to God. And it may be six months, it may be a year and a half, but just the patience is really hard for us type A personality. Well, it is. It is. Yeah. But also, elderships need to be reading uh, Romans 14 and 15 yeah. when that's going on. And it needs to be done with love. Because one thing I've seen is, People get fired up about their position. They think God has shown me this. So you got eight different positions and God showing all eight people. Well, that's the spirit of confusion. That can't be God. Right? So a lot of times if you think you're in from God and there are these indicators that mm, that's not quite smacking of God, then patience and pray. Everything done in love. something about love, agape love, this love is willing the good of the other. But they're waiting out in the hall. You guys have been great. Thank you so much. Thank you.